1: We don't want to scare people too much <laughs> the reality is though is if you're not forming a thesis on web 3 nfts metaverse and crypto then something's wrong with you uh then you're a dinosaur from the bottom ain't no half stepping i'm the dog i made it through so they don't ask questions long beach and it ain't no half repping once a dog always a dog so they don't ask questions
0: Angelo Robles is the host of the Angelo Robles podcast. He's also the founder and CEO of Family Office Association. This is his second appearance on the pod. Angelo, you're the first guest that I've had back on the podcast, and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Ah,
1: Scott, it's such an honor. I really enjoyed our first conversation. I'm probably not deserving of being the Guest, I mean, you've had the mooch and so many other great speakers, but I'm I'm glad I'm back, and hopefully, I'll have some good stuff to share with the audience.
0: Man, I took so much out of our last conversation, so many great life tips, so many great investing tips, and so I'm I'm looking to pull a lot out of you today, my man. Oh, uh, you know, I'm looking to talk about. Let's hope I could deliver. Oh, I th- sure. I think you will. I think you will. You know, I want to know what family offices are doing in this market environment. You know, I want to understand how high net worth individuals are prepping or did prep for disaster, the market that we're in. And I want to see what lessons active and young investors can take away from that. So let's start things off by just getting your framework for where we are in this current market cycle. You know, the market has been a it's been a rough ride, to say the least, in pretty much every asset class except Energy. You know, oil and gas has been rocking in 2022 for the most part. So how have families of wealth and high net wealth individuals been navigating this environment from your perspective?
1: Well, in the short term, many of them are getting their butts kicked, like all of us. Uh the difference that they have is besides having a tremendous amount more capital than most of us, is they have time on their side, which relates to having also a lot of capital. So for them, they could look at it, if they long-term believe in the thesis, you're not going to get distracted by a downturn in the market caused by rising interest rates and other macroeconomic uh, issues, inflation, etc. If you're a long-term believer in Bitcoin, in Ethereum, in gold, whatever it may be, this is a chance to buy in specifically at the Bitcoin and Ethereum at a better price. If your thesis is still the same, the fact that the price is low in theory should not be enough to change your thesis. So the advantage that the super rich have is they likely have enough resources, enough diversity, enough liquidity, or they should, where they have the opportunity to purchase things at a discount and they have patience and time on their side.
0: Is that something you're seeing? Are you seeing uh, high net worth individuals put money to work at these levels here?
1: Yes and no. There's an old adage in the single family office community. And for the audience, that's a little bit new to my verbiage. I'll try to keep away from the industry jargon. But being the founder (laughs) of Family Office Association, what we most represent are what's called single family offices. Those are entities created by one family of great wealth to internally and exclusively manage often their financial and their other affairs. So 24 seven, that's a team of people and resources dedicated to one super rich family, maybe a couple of hundred million, maybe a billion, maybe more. Uh, So we're effectively a trade group, a collective, a collaborative and a thought leader. And I've been doing this a long time dedicated to that community. So one of the sayings that we have in the community, Scott, that you probably heard, No one wants to hear it is, you know, one family office, you know, one, they're all snowflakes. They're all different. So the Mm. answer to your question is some of them are patient and some of them are looking to be more tactical. Some of them may have cash and distribution needs. So it really does vary Uh, from I think what the audience would like is given that I'm a researcher at heart. And I talked to hundreds, if not thousands of, quote, unquote, the world super rich. There are some insights that I did gather this summer. I did an interview at my event in Newport, Rhode Island with a wealth creator. He also created a a public company, actually, in Canada, now that I think about it. He may not want me to note it, so I'm going to keep his name and the company private. Uh, But he had a great feedback. He goes, Angelo... I was in the Hamptons this summer, of course, where else? And he's meeting with other families in like a group, I think it might've been a dinner setting. And he basically said, given that he's more of an earlier stage, a startup entrepreneur and active in VC, like what are your expectations in various asset classes? And he got me at the edge of my seat. I'm like, man, this is like, I want to hear this. I want to hear this myself. And I know when he got to what his core is which is effectively earlier stage in vc he said the audience came back with 35% and my initial instinct was that sounds kind of high i mean what would you think scott if would you, do you think as an institutional level investor they would be happy broadly with their vc asset class getting 35% yeah that uh <laughs> that seems <laughs> that seems pretty wild
0: okay so you
1: and i both felt the same way But maybe this goes to show the mind of an incredibly successful earlier stage investor, entrepreneur, but who is an LP and VC. He's like, oh, like, like, that's all. I'm like, really? Uh, So he, in that example, for whatever 20 or 30% of his portfolio is looking for more exponential returns. Mm -hmm. Not every company or every VC investment is going to get that, but he's effectively looking for multiples. Uh, it may not happen every year because there's various cycles and other factors. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was interesting to go inside the mind of a successful entrepreneur who's worth a lot of money, mm-hmm. a created and a now public company, maybe even multiple that I think about it, and also has a merchant bank. I mean, this is a highly successful person that for a good part of his portfolio, 35% was laughable now wow could we argue that the super rich have opportunities that sometimes we mere mortals don't have and i'm going to say that is an advantage now that's a chicken or egg thing so how do you become rich to have the advantages of getting investment opportunities that others may not have besides inheriting and that is its own set of challenges and often burden for generational families probably not the point of today's discussion but mm-hmm. i think the insight and the takeaway there is there are some families that really have incredibly high expectations of returns now let me converse that i guess you could say with the opposite when i often talk to family offices they appear and forget this year but broadly to be pretty happy with 6 to 8% returns And I used to think, okay, number one, preserve capital, rule number two, don't forget rule number one, right? (laughs) So I know that makes sense. But I started to think these, and I might have mentioned this in our first podcast, these super rich families and family offices have multiple family members pulling on effectively the capital through distributions. They have taxes, they have death taxes, they have whatever capital gains taxes. So, you know, taxes are taxes or they're going to be there. They have the impact of inflation. And we all know that the government reported numbers on inflation are complete let me go with a nice word. How about nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> Especially for the super rich that are often buying things, eating filet mignon, buying homes in Malibu, buying art, buying often appreciating assets in more normal environments. So their inflation may literally be closer to 20 or 30%. So you couple those factors over time, and it makes you think that 6 to 8% is bordering maybe on being way too conservative. Mm-hmm. The challenge is who's where does the buck stop? Does it stop at the family that's making the decisions or with the family office executives that are probably in a little bit of preservation mode, the markets aren't so good, let me down expectations and let me have more smoothness and steadiness which maybe in an institutional level portfolio may make some sense, but that does not always work for the super rich and the billionaires for the reasons that I noted. So maybe both were extremes, being disappointed in 35% VC returns and expectations over time of six to 8%. Maybe the happy medium is a little bit closer to somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. But I will warn families of great wealth that wanna have generational legacy wealth that likely for the examples that I did give they're going to have to rethink their paradigm of six to eight percent returns over decades that may not work so well.
0: interesting. You touched on central banks and uh, how, you know, here in Canada, they just did a seventy five basis point hike today. And so how are uh, you know, interest rates affecting people you work with? And what are your thoughts on how central banks are tackling inflation?
1: Well, it's kind of a mess all over the place. We have bad fiscal policy in practically every country on earth, printing money. But governments could do that, right? (laughs) They could sweep problems under the rug by printing money and, quote unquote, making the citizenship happy, I guess you could say, in the short term. Until it comes to bite everyone. So could fiscal mispolicy lead to, quote unquote, inflation? Sure it could. Is that the only cause and the initial cause of the inflation we're going through now? No, it's probably more supply and demand than an issue on the supply side. But effectively, it's really a combination of both. So we have horrific fiscal policy, lack of discipline from governments and individuals. Uh, we have... What I'm going to argue, it's not hyperinflation in most countries, but it's definitely more than is being reported, at least here in the U.S. So one of the ways to combat that is to raise rates. And that usually could work. And, you know, we could argue if they weren't raising rates, maybe inflation will be even higher than it is. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is, The experts, the so-called experts, the professors, the economists, I don't know if they know that much more than maybe you and I do, who are active investors and traders in the market. I respect them. I interview them on my podcast. I've had a laundry list of great ones, and I always enjoy my conversations. But I also really look for, are they active allocators and investors? To really understand that we really don't quite know how the world works. Logic raise interest rates, inflation will come down. Well, suppose it is more supply side. Suppose our deficit here in the U.S. and most other countries is getting ridiculous. So we're in a really difficult economic environment. I guess I fashion myself a little bit of a very much amateur macroeconomist, at least in the family office world. And I guess I'm not uh, afraid to express my thoughts, as your audience can probably tell. So we have grave challenges now. You know, we still have the impact of COVID mainly on the supply chains. We don't know what this winter season is gonna bring for many of us with the advent of more variations of COVID and more lockdowns and challenges to our economy, which again, maybe we'll, we'll either not go into that or save that one for a little bit later. We have a war going on obviously in Russia and the Ukraine, the second and largest third producers of wheat, major agriculture and oil. And the challenges that we're seeing now in Europe, in Germany and other countries due to the conflict. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. We have lots of problems. Let's just be realistic about it. You sometimes have to address the realistic issues that are in the room and then have some logic that could hope to address them. But again, this goes back to the issue of we think we know how the world works until it doesn't. I mean, I had on... One of the deepest macro thinkers, and I've had him on multiple times, but relatively a couple of months ago, relatively recent. His name is Adam Robinson. Like, the world doesn't really work now because it's built on a framework, I guess you could say Bretton Woods from the 1940s, of, you know, rising GDP, at least here in America, and population rising to match that. And now you have the challenge of, you know, we're slowing down the economy. Uh, we have all the challenges that I described we have population issues relative to younger people outside of areas like the continent of Africa and India and some other countries where it's in decline I mean theoretically what mathematically in like 900 years there'll be no one left in Japan I, I'm, I'm exaggerating that but by but by the ratio of numbers you get the big picture of it mm-hmm. so the model, of debt, 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 it's good, we'll grow our way out of it. I just, that's becoming harder for that to work. So we're in a world of hurt, but in chaos, maybe comes opportunity. So those with cash on the sidelines, the availability of getting opportunities that are distressed, perhaps in real estate and other opportunities, arguably in whatever value stocks, I'm still... A believer big tech is not going to go away it got whipped with raising interest rates as did crypto those were two of the major impacts on the economy now from a political perspective you think that president biden will be looking at the midterms uh maybe wanting to have things look a little more rosy from an economic perspective but i guess the rates keep on going up Mm -hmm. and outside of some little positive notes in the summer generally The markets are kind of very, very challenging right now. So Mm -hmm. we're in a really interesting, I guess that's a good way to put it, an interesting environment that is fraught with grave challenges, which again goes back to the super rich. The advantage they have is time. Maybe some of them, some families I know have a 30 to 50 year time horizon. But I think things are very challenging right now. I have more questions and I have answers in terms of what works.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the reasons that I like uh, speaking with you, Angelo, because I think that you're asking the right questions. You know, you you touched on a lot there. You know, I, I also believe that it's a supply-based inflationary environment. Um, you know, and and you're not the first person to to mention India right. as East. as a, a definite area that that we should be watching for further investment, strictly based on demographics so i think i think you're uh, in the right spot angelo because this has been such a big year for macroeconomics and and like you i feel like this has been an area that i've been learning a lot about this year it does seem to get noisier by the day you know there's more information we got cpi coming out the rates et cetera. Et cetera. how do you cut through the noise and develop your investment thesis
1: Often by making a hell of a lot of mistakes, I'll tell you that. So as opposed to me, maybe I'll think of some iconic investors that I've interviewed at my in-person events as well as digitally. And that's really what I try to do. I want to talk to people that are smarter than me, one that's a very low benchmark, so that's easier. That's easy <laughs> to do. I want to talk to people that I said, even though I may disagree with them, macro, economists, deeper thinkers, but I really want to talk to successful entrepreneurial families and true investors and what I could learn from them and how I could learn, I think maybe how they haven't adapted moving forward in a world that doesn't make as much sense anymore. Uh, So there's a variety of factors. Again, there is no one formula here. The world often doesn't make sense. If I had to give one thing that I've broadly learned from a lot of these families is don't overcomplicate it. The more inputs you have, oh, well, we belong to this, this, and that service. We look at these graphs. We look at these macroeconomic reports and this and that. We have like 39 different inputs that we we watch or view. That's not gonna make you a better investor. Often the best investors have a core one to three things they look at. And then maybe some others that depending on certain situations may supplement it. I hate to say that they go by gut because you gotta make decisions based on logic. But there are some things where you could look forward a little bit in the future and just see the trends where things are headed. And that should help to impact in decisions that you make other than looking at past performance issues, which are built upon a framework that may not apply perfectly in today's world. So my my simplistic answer will be you probably have too many inputs and that applies to everything in your life, not just finance and investing. You should streamline that. You should evaluate it frequently because you may need to adapt or rotate something in or rotate something out. Often what you've learned in economics, especially as someone 50 or older and how the world works in investing, it, it's not as applicable in today's world for the reasons that I noted. Things are changing. It's not built on debt as much, although what, what governments are doing, you would think otherwise and how a lot of people in that age bracket feel broadly about crypto and much happening in that community. Their paradigm of what works does not apply. Actually, it's a burden, often their knowledge or what has worked in the past. So again, I go back to, you have to evolve, you have to adapt. It's a hard market out there. What I find the families also doing in going in a little different direction is creating businesses. Therefore, they're not as reliant on strictly investment income per se, which is largely outside their control, but they could control what they build and potentially how successful it is and the income stream those businesses could uh, provide, quote unquote, to the family. And again, I could get into taxes and challenges there, but broadly from an investment and an quote unquote, an income and net worth perspective, uh, building businesses has always effectively been the number one thing for families becoming super rich.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's what would have made them wealthy in the first place, right? They build a successful business, it takes off, et cetera, et cetera. Angelo, I'm interested to get to know you a little bit more as a person. You know, I know you kind of talk down your intelligence there, man, but I I, I love what you're saying. Your audience I think, is going to get bored. <laughs> I think, uh, no, man, I, I think, you know, what you have built and the, and the people you surround yourself with is, is very impressive. So, you know, uh, tell me about how the Family Office Association got started and what's a day in the life of the CEO and founder?
1: I... Began to think about in creating the early framework of FOA, that's Family Office Association, in 2007. We officially launched in 2008. What a great year. (laughs) (laughs) And ironically, I was not smart enough to plan it that way. But again, chaos and turmoil can be a galvanizing point for people, even the super rich, to come together and to learn and not feel that they know everything. So the opportunity for me to bring great minds, deep thinkers, various generations of families together, and then help to impart some of what I learned and my knowledge and my experiences to that creates an interesting mix of a collective wisdom. I guess you could say of quote unquote, the top watt, you know, 0.0001 of 1%. Uh, So it's been an interesting learning experience for me. I love what I do it's something new and engaging every day. And I'm lucky to have effectively thousands of amazing relationships around the world. Uh, So it's really exciting. What does a day in the life of me look like? Well, uh, I get up early. Uh, Lately since COVID, I've been a little bit of a health and wellness fanatic. So I'm very, very much into from meditation to mitigating or managing what I eat and being very careful. And I rotate out of various things that are at least by my perspective, healthy. And I am fanatical about putting time in for self-development, for meditative purposes, and for physical health, effectively seven days a week. I find that for me, bigger decisions are better done in the morning and perhaps a little more creativity into the late afternoon, into the evening. Uh, But I effectively, I mean, I wish I could be one of those people that could get everything done in four hours, whatever, nine to one and call it a day. I just have never figured that out. So for me, I have a formula that works kind of for me, but that often does mean often into the evening when I'm feeling more creative, I am doing work, whether it's on my podcast, the Angelo Robles podcast, my books, my writing, my masterclasses, uh, my investing, and obviously what I do in Family Office Association. I suppose from the more exciting part of what I do at Family Office Association is I just talk to amazing people every day. I may talk to a wealth creator that created a company and sold it for $200 million. I may talk to someone on the Forbes 50. I may talk to an executive that heads up their family office. But I also like CFO and COO, meaning operational and financial issues. I may talk to someone from that perspective to the family to gain that different perspective. I may talk to a generational family member. I may talk to a hedge fund manager, a VC, an economist, a macro thinker, and I ask them questions and I take notes and I learn. And hopefully I'm able to impart that, that makes my life exciting, at least from the business side of things. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, it's gonna get a little off topic then I'll try to bring it back. But I have gotten questions and I did a private two hour interview with her name is Amy Brodsky, and event I hosted in Newport, Rhode Island where it was basically her interviewing me. My God, she had to kill two hours on that, but somehow Amy did it. Great job, Amy. And she did ask some interesting questions, including, you know, I'm looking at a picture of you pre-COVID, looking at a picture of you now, you look different. You used to be always in a suit and tie. Your hair was short. You had no beard, you had no tattoos. And and she meant it in a positive way to kind of like why. But do any of those things really matter? We judge people on the surface like as if I'm wearing a $10,000 custom suit and tie somehow makes me a better, deeper thinker and investor. Maybe for some it does and it's legit. And maybe for some it's completely a facade uh, just to trick you because that's how you perceive someone's success to be. So no, just because my hair is longer and I have a beard and I have a couple of tattoos does not mean that I'm not intellectual uh, and that I'm not incredibly ingrained as one of, I think, one of the leading thought leaders in the family office and investing community. I do find it interesting how just things change. I mean, I'll give you another paradigm and maybe only New Yorkers back in the 80s and 90s are going to know this, but but you'll you'll get the bigger picture of it. There used to be an amazing club, mainly around comedians and entertainers in New York called the Friars Club. And back in the 90s, man, it was the club to be a part of. Of course, I was young and although I wanted to throw a check at them and get in after coming as a guest, no, they didn't accept me. Uh, But five or 10 years later, putting us, what, maybe 2007 or eight, they effectively were a shell of themselves. Why? They didn't evolve. They didn't adapt. Where clubs, membership groups in today's world, I may think of the Soho House and how it's younger, it's more dynamic. So the group that I mentioned didn't take in the young people in biotech, didn't take in... Uh, the young entrepreneurs, the techies, the people in Web3 and crypto. And those are the people now that are often the younger people that are driving a lot of the returns, a lot of the investing, a lot of the more creative thinking. And you go to a Soho house now and there's all sorts of people there, including people that would have a tattoo and beard where that never would have happened 20, 30 years ago. At example, I gave like the Friars Club. So the moral of that story, don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, Judge someone by your engagement and relationship with them and the value that you get from them and respect that we all have creativity and and are individual. So we don't necessarily want to conform to, quote unquote, and be part of the matrix and, you know, be just like everyone else. We want to express our creativity. And if you don't adapt and don't evolve, you will, especially in today's world like that, you'll be a footnote in history. You'll be long gone. So I know I went off a little bit on one of my legendary Angelo tangents but uh I felt it was important to give a little bit of that context to your question.
0: No, I think anyone who didn't change over the last few years that we've gone through those are the ones you need to be worried about, right? Because <laughs> I mean we 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 had a real human experience, a collective human experience. It's a big water, I know everyone. <laughs> and uh you know, and so I think I think uh, your evolution into who you want to become you know, some may say that COVID just sped that up. And uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're smarter, stronger, faster, better on the other end. So Angelo, you have a program called Disaster Planning for the Super Rich. While you and I aren't billionaires yet, I'd love for you to share uh, your framework for active investors, maybe young investors. What are some things that we can pull from what super rich do, to grow their wealth over time and, and then bring that into an active investing environment so that we can grow our wealth and protect ourselves. What's your framework for disaster planning for the super rich?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have little different variations of it. Disaster prep for billionaires or those that want to be, which, of course, I think is practically all of us. So the word disaster prep is something that I've been very active in in terms of understanding what makes a successful investor or family resilient. And as Nassim Taleb talks about, one level above that, which is very hard to do, and that's becoming anti-fragile. So investments are a part of it, but arguably even maybe just a, a quarter of it, a part of it. It's much deeper than that because they already have wealth. So the concern for them, especially if they come from a humble background, is kind of it being taken from them. Uh, and, yeah, I could argue taxation from capital gains to traditional income to estate taxes is a form of government confiscation. Now, yes, do we have government services that are needed, including our wonderful military? Absolutely. I could argue there could be other sources of taxation uh, from sales and others that would be more effective or efficient, but probably today is not the time to, to argue that. So I'm going to answer your question more broadly, then I'll try to bring it in to more of the investing side. Although some of the things I've already discussed, you can't be aiming for 6 to 8% returns. You've got to start businesses, multiple streams of income. You've got to look into opportunities of what's upcoming in longevity well, literally from figuratively that you may live decades longer, but investing in things that could have exponential returns, like what I said earlier in the podcast and maybe not being happy, apparently with 35% returns, (laughs) biotech longevity, possibly longer term Web3 and crypto. Uh, So there's potentially lots of opportunities out there. So what I do, and we've already covered some of it, is I look at the big picture macroeconomics. So we already discussed There's lots of problems in the world, kind of, at least runaway inflation, rising interest rates, a war, a COVID, uh, more and more influenced by agencies in Europe and others. And I'm going to try to be a little politically correct and careful that would like for the word that I would probably use. And I'm not the only one, uh, you know, for us to be effectively inside a matrix to, you know, be a. A good boy or girl, go to school, develop debt, (laughs) get out, be a cog in the wheel, work for the system, get married, pay taxes, have a mortgage, and then just kind of move on and pass away. And maybe for some of you, that's not so bad, and kudos. Whatever works for you and makes you internally happy, that's great. But for me and others, that may not be what we deem to be a satisfying existence. We want to make our mark. And by doing so, we may be taking more risk that maybe the average person's not going to take. But let's go back to the bigger point. So there's lots of issues going on around the world that would make a person of great wealth, I know because that's the world that I live in, concerned. And COVID brought a lot of them to the forefront, including, again, massive government spending, the deficit, uh, monetary policy, central banking policy in the US, the Fed broadly, I would look at the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland and others. There's just lots of things going on. So when you're someone of wealth, you have to worry about confiscation through taxation. You have to worry about, in theory, governments have the ultimate power. They could just keep on printing money and they have a monopoly on violence. And that includes here in the U.S. and Western countries. It doesn't go away here. It may not be quite as obvious as it is in some, quote, unquote, some other countries. Just look at COVID lockdowns. Imagine now that they realize how much of the Western world is just so compliant. Uh, what's next? What could happen where if you're living in California that they do a 90-day restriction on travel? Suppose you only have a U.S. passport. Suppose you have no freedom of flexibility and movement. Uh, We're losing more and more freedoms effectively every day. That's just a reality of it. So you have to realize that families like this and probably I think all of you should be a little very aware that personal freedoms are very valuable. Is it a little scary because we have less government reliance? Sure. But capitalism, in my opinion, at least, still beats the alternative. And I don't necessarily from what I would deem to be a negative perspective be told what to do, uh, in terms of from an energy policy perspective individually, to what? Now I can't eat meat, I can't do this, I can't do that. Like I just don't know what's next. So when I use the term that many of us are living in the matrix, I may not mean that literally, although who knows, maybe we are in a simulation. <laughs> it's I a question Eli I have asked. That. Uh, Yeah, like I've asked some very interesting people in my podcast as well. And I I don't know, like half the time they say that we may be. uh, So maybe they're right. So as I mentioned, I uh, often mentor or tutor a lot of younger people defined as often college age or under 30, uh, both men and women. I guess I have a little more experience uh, in today's world being a male myself in terms of what that would look like and some of the challenges that I see that they would go through. And I say, I mean, one advice that I have for them was they hear me talk about quote unquote, the matrix and this and that is make money. And I know that's easier said than done, but when you have money and resources, you have optionality. You could have multiple residences around the world. You could have multiple passports. You could structure things through trust, create foundations, you have optionality. And I'm not saying that's easy, but when you're young, That's the time to take risks, to be an entrepreneur, to go and create money, multiple streams of revenue, and then develop, you know, hedges and a moat effectively around your castle that you could build. Now, there will come a point, I think, maybe the U.S. could possibly escape it, although with the political leadership we have now and probably in a foreseeable future, probably not, where... And you would know from your activity in crypto and blockchain, we will likely have a a one-day-a-world coin. I mean, I could get into the world settles in U.S. dollars right now. There are forces that would like to change that. They likely in time will succeed. There will likely be a basket of securities, including a digital dollar, a digital one, and others that make up what the IMF would potentially like to have. But that will be on a centralized effectively blockchain and we lose complete privacy and they don't like something that you do when you saw some of this in your country or at least the threat of it, they just shut you down. Maybe Mm -hmm. shut your friends and family down as well. Things could go really, really wrong. And I don't think there's anything that could stop that inevitably maybe over decades, probably sooner quote unquote, a world coin from happening. Oh, there's lots of different directions I could go with that. I don't want to scare your audience. And for me to do a true disaster prep for billionaires or those that want to be, that really at minimum is an eight hour video masterclass. Mm -hmm. And really it's multiple days with me. So for families that would potentially like to engage from that perspective, they could reach out to me. They could find me in social media or towards the end of this, I'll give my information you know, that's something that I've also have done multiple month and year long plus engagements with. So that varies depending on the complexity and the issues that they want to cover. Uh, the other topic, and that was a very broad topic that, you know, disaster prep or planning for the super rich on the investing side, again, the world is being turned upside down inflation, macro, uh, If you're overly dominated uh, or denominated in US dollars, which practically all of us are, I think that is a dynamic over the next 10 or so years that's gonna change, meaning it's probably gonna go down. Therefore, if a lot of what you own is effectively in US dollars, which is what a lot of us, that's gonna make it harder and harder for our equity and perhaps real estate and other positions to be successful. Become more of a global citizen, a sovereign citizen, diversify. Look at opportunities where population's rising. We mentioned one of them. Uh, Me and Raul Paul will both agree that India over decades has potential to really be a truly impressive superpower. Maybe even, who knows, overtake the US or China. We'll see how that could play out over time. I would look into commodities, obviously, although gold's been terrible, uh, but broadly energy, and building and construction, depending on, you know, from copper and other supplies. Although, again, with a decreasing population, that's a little bit in turmoil as well. I would definitely look at supply chains air, ports, shipping containers, trucking in the future to a degree, warehousing and drones, telecom. Those are all areas that billionaires, I know, are looking at. Now, they have the resources to be direct investors, often at billions of dollars, into some of those. I realize for the average person, including me, that's unrealistic, but you could still be active in commodities and supply chains through either public companies or more liquid opportunities, including ETFs and other strategies that may be applicable, quote unquote, for the mass affluent and allow an opportunity, again, just. Look forward, look to the future, see how things are dynamic and how they're changing. Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit because I think that people like stories. Like I told the one about, again, the entrepreneur that wasn't happy with a 35% return. (laughs) So I was at a dinner party in Greenwich, Connecticut a week ago. And one of the people there was an amazing self-made entrepreneur, I think like barely graduated high school, although now is very polished. And like, I'm just so fascinated. How did you make your money? And again, the most common things that I seem to hear are they're disciplined, they're grinders, they work hard, they made sacrifices, they took risk. And sometimes things worked out, sometimes they didn't, but they didn't get discouraged. They always seemed to bounce back. And they realized the time to do this was often in their younger years. So with this person, it's like, oh, yeah, I own hundreds of storage facilities and warehouses. And that's the vast majority of their wealth, like zero occupancy issues (laughs) during
0: COVID because
1: everyone wanted storage and warehousing, at least selectively per geographic and how they adapted the facility was a very, very good, quote unquote, commercial real estate play. Now, I could argue somewhat illiquid. Let me go back to that disaster prep for billionaires part of it. And this is what I told him. What would happen through eminent domain? The government does says it's ours. We're gonna pay you what we deem to be fair market value. Maybe we'll even call a presidential executive order and just simply take it from you and worry about issues with your repayment at some point in the future. It's a national emergency. You can't take real estate up and with you and go. Could titles and deeds in the future on a blockchain be, be changed, be pledged? There's lots of things that could go wrong. But again, that's more well into eight hours plus. So we're not mm-hmm. going to have the time for that. And I save that for my consulting engagements as well. But this person started from nothing. And well, do you take in LPs? No. Why would I want to do that? Why do I want to turn my kitchen into a restaurant? I don't need LPs. I have access to capital given all the properties that I own. When I wanna buy more, I could just do cash or I could do a little bit of levering up if that's what I wanna do. So again, I really find it interesting. And even that person, I pointed out some potential flaws relative to preservation longer term, some of them that I had a chance to already hint at. In disaster prep for billionaires, the other common topic that comes up is, well, where do I live? How many passports? Where should they be? And what kind of property should I have if things were to really go bad? So we go into things like inverted uh, (laughs) condos or former missile silos and how to structure for air, for water, for food, for protection, for discretion, for privacy. And again, I'm going to save that a little more for kind of on the consulting side of the work that I do with families. Uh, But, you know, there's... I even go a little bit into submarines and even space. Uh, wow. Now, again, that's for very rarefied air. But we see billionaires now, one that you mentioned earlier, and others that are highly concerned about certain things. And maybe to them, stealing from Star Trek, you know, space is the new frontier. Mm-hmm. So an opportunity for them to, quote, unquote, a little bit more diversity and security and what they deem to be a a little bit away from again the all-powerful money printing governments that have a monopoly on violence mm. so i could get into geothermal on these homes i could get into a whole bunch of things on uh sterilization uv equipment and all that so that's a really deep project scott i mean you asked me wow. in a question looking to give her two or three minute answer but <laughs> it's like impossible Man. to and even in the last 10 or 12 minutes i I covered like one-tenth of 1% of it. It's just so much more.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you it really is disaster prep. End of the world. Okay, the grid is, you know, they want to be off the grid. They want to be able to move around. They want to be able to maintain their wealth. And, and that's something yes, that you help and, yeah. well, with, I mean, essentially. I mean, the
1: ultimate, like nuclear war or something like that, I mean, yeah, that's possible. But I'm just thinking simply sovereign risk mm-hmm. or insurrection inside the country, a civil war, things going wrong. Uh, I would say the mistakes that some of those families that are even fluid in those subjects are making is underrating Bitcoin, not understanding enough about Web3 and technology. I mentioned a little bit about submarines in space trying to be a little cute, but there's a grain of truth to that. And I think that Balaji Servinson, I probably messed up his name, he's brilliant, and his book, The Network State, I highly recommend it, uh, offers some interesting areas about how the world is changing and how with Web3 communities and something decentralized like Bitcoin, is this a way potentially kind of out of the matrix? It could be. I just don't know if the powers that be, the governments and people behind them are really going to allow that. Meaning in theory, they could stop Bitcoin. They could just call it illegal. They could control nodes they could control on and off ramps, they could tax it at 99%. Uh but it may have a little bit of escape velocity at this point. We'll see. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting time. Some things I could point out to are good. Some are not so good. But we can't say that we are not living in interesting times.
0: No, and and I'm really glad that you brought up the network state book because that's exactly what was coming to mind uh when you're going through, you know, that kind of idea of no more nation states, you know, wh- and, and the evolution of society, you know, because I've I've uh, seen a lot of interviews with Balaji and and he is saying some really interesting things, and and I think crypto uh, will definitely play a part uh, in that future for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk, you know, too much about crypto. Yes, those that follow my podcast, and I've been a little slower. The last couple of months mainly because of some time off reflecting adapting and also doing more in-person events and consulting at family office association but i will get to being more active on my youtube platform which is at family office or on my traditional podcasting platforms on apple and spotify i am absolutely a long-term advocate would i have done some things differently sure Uh, Do I wish I liquidated more at the top of the market? Well, of course, we all do. Uh, So I learned some and I made mistakes, but I'm absolutely a believer in everything Web3, Metaverse, NFTs and crypto, uh, DAOs and how it's all coming together. Are there rug pulls out there? You bet you are effectively frauds. Yes, yes, and yes. And I had an investment as many of you probably did, Terra Luna and others, Uh, Luckily I had diversity, so it didn't make up any one big percentage. But am I a long-term believer? Unless, again, maybe governments mess it up, which they probably will have a hand in, but we'll see in Bitcoin, in Ethereum and Solana. Very interesting. Uh, XRP I find fascinating, AKA Ripple, the blockchain, and why governments and banks appear to be so interested in it. uh, That's probably a platform that they would love to use relative to I mentioned the future world coin and the all-seeing government and privacy and turning the spigot off and no access to your now digital wallets but again we don't want to scare people too much <laughs> the reality is though is if you're not forming a thesis on web3 nft's metaverse and crypto then something's wrong with you uh then you're a dinosaur and you're going to be do you think that to Technology is going to roll back. It's not. It's going to progress forward. And you have to make a decision for survival, for utilization, for understanding a new world moving forward, as well as potentially the investment opportunity, which could provide some exponential returns. Follow very closely what UGA Labs is doing. Very interesting. Are they going to be the next Netflix, Disney, Facebook, aka Meta? Maybe. So I think there's lots we could do to keep on learning, learn to think for ourselves. That's something I mentioned the last time I was on your podcast. Michael Saylor and many others have mentioned that. That's among the most common things I hear from billionaires is yeah, you know, get your value out of your education in school. But at the end of the day, learn to think for yourself, make your own decisions. You're going to be right, hopefully more than you're wrong, but you are going to be wrong. You are going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that opportunity to either mitigate the risk of those mistakes, having diversity, bouncing back, being disciplined. I mean, all those things are going to go into kind of what helps to make, quote unquote, a successful person
0: definitely yeah and i've i've done a lot of uh, research myself on central bank digital currencies and what are being called distributed ledger technology or dlt's which is kind of the opposite of a decentralized ledger huh, such as bitcoin And so I thought, you know, my sense is that that's where a lot of the central banks are going to go. They're going to go the distributed ledger technology. And so I've been looking into a lot of things like uh, the quant network and the like, Um, you know, basically who are the major industry players that are trying to to. Uh, bring on central banks into blockchain through kind of that closed loop. So I think you've touched on a lot of really uh, interesting things there. I'm interested to know how you personally analyze a crypto, you know, like what is your criteria, Angelo, for making an investment in something? How how do you decide if it makes sense to you? And then how do you decide, Okay, yeah, I see the use case of this and and now I want to be a part of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's overly analytical. I think I agree with what I heard Raul technically pronounced Raul Paul say, and I've interviewed him a couple of times. Uh, How do you mitigate risk? You have enough information to form a thesis and you make a small investment. And now you're engaged and now you want to learn more. So you mitigate your risk by limiting your position sizing. Now, of course... Often the biggest mistake we make is not putting enough money into something that went up incredibly exponentially, and then getting out in time. But you know, there's a few lucky slash brilliant people that could potentially do that. So uh, early during COVID is when I started to get more active. I had time on my hands. What a surprise! I had some good connectivity broadly among deeper thinkers, both pro and con, in the community. And like I said, I formed my own thesis, I thought for myself, quote, unquote, and then I limited my position size, and it just started to exponentially grow. Now, yeah, was that genius on my part or getting early on in a wickedly good bull market? Yeah, of course, it was more the latter. I get it. (laughs) You got to be realistic. Again, I wish I exited more come October, November of last year, which was kind of the peak. So looked like a genius for near two years. And- not so much a genius, I guess you could say, for most of this year and a part of last, but I am a long-term advocate and believer. And my net returns from broadly crypto, sure, they're not what they were last October, November, but they're still pretty damn impressive compared to traditional numbers of, again, whatever, 5 10 15%. And a part of your portfolio, for the reasons we already discussed, I think that you're going to need that. So for me, it's the information changes so rapidly. You can't really read a book. I mean, yeah, you could. Uh, blogs, deeper thinkers, Twitter, and you know, have a core group of people like Balaji's one of them that we noted, Raul Paul, Michael Saylor. There's so many of them. And again, they're probably gonna be right and wrong, probably about half the time. <laughs> so you, you you gotta form your own thesis and make your own decision, start off small, limit your position size, then as you get more knowledge and comfort, there are some things you may wanna let ride and that opportunity of building it up to be a greater part of your portfolio. So that's basically what happened to me. I have learned, partially due to a company that went bankrupt in your country that I had some crypto on, be very careful, about leaving your crypto in centralized exchanges. Things could go wrong. There's a saying among the maximalist in the Bitcoin community that is likely very true. Not your keys, not your crypto. There are things that could go wrong from government shutting it down <laughs> and taking your money for lack of a better word uh, to simply Bad bear markets leverage and a lot of these companies go under and you're not really secured with your quote unquote assets. So you have to start to understand digital wallets, security, cyber issues, very carefully mitigating that, but having greater control, arguably, I could say institutional level custody, but you know, let's not go into a deep dive on that. That could go in many different positive or negative directions multi-sig, all that stuff. You know what? You have to educate yourself. And this is not a thousand hours. I don't know. Maybe it's 20 to 30 hours. Come on. You just have to put in the time and you have to do it. Uh, but sure, there's risk. There's risk in many different things, obviously, including investing in the digital asset community, especially short term, because it. it it is so volatile.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day of like uh, asking for a good price on Bitcoin. Hey, hey, you know, is this a good price for Bitcoin? Should I be buying here? And, I, and my answer was, do you have a two to five year time horizon? Because if you don't care <laughs> about short term price action, sure, it's great. But if you do, then, you know, I think. To the point that you made earlier about geopolitics and macroeconomics, you know it is it is definitely uh, still a dangerous time uh, in the market, Angelo. Uh, you know because we've had such massive pullbacks in crypto, Web three, metaverse tokens, etc. What are you hearing from you know some of these high net worth individuals or people in your circles now that the valuations have dropped to these levels? Do they look at this crisis as opportunity or are they still just kind of scared and on the sidelines.
1: I go a little back to my earlier answer, and I know it's a kind of a a too much down the middle answer, but it's so true that, again, there's a finite number of super, 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 super rich people, and they are all over the place. Were they the wealth creator? They tend to be a little more entrepreneurial and take risk. Are they an inheritor? They tend to often be a little more careful and conservative. Are they working in the family office and, again, looking to protect their job by not having too much fluctuation and not doing something they're not putting the work in or being as familiar with? So it does vary. They're all snowflakes. So both of your extremes are true. There are some that have had no interest five years ago, two years ago, one day ago, and it's probably not going to change. And there's others that are gung-ho and maybe did very well, then got a little clobbered in the last couple of months. But may or may not still be longer-term believers. But yes, I would say there broadly is a groundswell that the technology is not going to go away. We don't quite know who the winners and losers are going to be. We do need to understand the space more. And maybe now in distressed times uh, could be a good time to, quote-unquote, to get more involved and do what I said earlier. If you're a billion-dollar family, maybe that's under 1%. For all others, maybe it's 1% to 3%. Limit your position, size, have diversity, put in the effort, think for yourself, and then adapt as new information comes in and your experience grows in terms of actively investing in that part of the community.
0: I want to stay focused on alternative investments. You interviewed Tony Robbins and a few other people in uh, October of 2021, and I recommend everyone go check that interview out i'll put a link in the description of the video below but uh you know tony really talked about biotech and some pretty interesting advances that are happening right now you know growing organs or, or printing <laughs> ears you know all this stuff which i thought was pretty interesting how do you look at uh, the biotech space uh, what are you hearing about potential investments and is that an area that you're uh, focused on as well
1: Yes, I find Tony Robbins to be a very fascinating person, came from nothing. I mean, Mm -hmm. nothing. Uh, And is a billionaire and is such a dynamic figure. And a lot of people don't know. I've interviewed him in person at my events in Santa Monica in California, not too long ago, right before COVID. And then, like you said, about 11 months ago, I went to his digital studios in Florida and did an interview with him and some effectively people of kind of the family office team and advisors that he listens to and gets information from. But very much he is think for yourself, make your own decision, the buck stops with you. And he's pretty darn fluid on Web3 crypto, NFTs in that community. So kudos to him from that perspective. But yes, he's very good friends. with someone else we've also have spoken to on my in-person and digital programs, that's the kind of legendary Dr. Peter Diamandis. And they co-wrote a book together, loved the book, that talks about the advancements in health and longevity and biotech and the things that you noted. Yes, I would say among the super rich, there is definitely interest in that, probably even more so than Web3 and crypto. So Longevity and biotech, being a direct investor for those that do the work is of interest to some that usually requires obviously more capital. And this goes back to one of the things I started off with. The super rich do have an advantage of obviously being qualified purchasers plus well above five million of whatever liquid net worth. They do have potential to be opportunistic investors in more risky, more volatile, but earlier stage opportunities that could have tremendous exponential returns. We don't have enough time to discuss in today's podcast. Is that unfair to everyone else? Uh, Why are we limited in the US, often by so-called SEC protection, that is basically stating that I'm not smart enough? Is that what you're saying? To make an investment into something that is more volatile? So what I'm basically trying to say is I'm not so sure that, again, the system is not rigged to keep the so-called bottom 99% out. It's harder. It's harder to escape that velocity of so-called getting out of the matrix uh, but again, we could maybe save that one for a bit of a different time. But we'll yes, do that one for round three. We'll do that one for, on
0: round three, my man.
1: <laughs> certainly for round three. But there is definitely interest in all those things you mentioned, which also creates again what do the super rich who are older they realize that their mortality may be, you know, in sight. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know, there's 60, 70, or 80. Theoretically. The average person lives to, what, 78, 79, so they're well past middle aged. And the opportunity of could we live healthy both mentally and physically for another 20, 30, 40 years than what is currently available. But the things that Tony Robbins and Peter wrote about in the book uh, relative to, again, effectively biotech and longevity, it appears to be changing rapidly rapidly. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say within the next 10 years, probably closer to 10 years, but in the next 10 years, there's going to be astonishing advancements, both from an investing perspective that's early to get in now and the opportunity of longevity. But that does bring up the question as if and it goes back to become rich, because if you're not. There's gonna be grave challenges with relying more on the government and three letter agencies in Europe and others that really don't want us to own anything, that want us to be quote unquote, what I would deem to be part of the matrix and having money and capital provides you optionality. And if you are gonna to live to 100, 110, 120 and be in better health than what we would perceive someone in that age now, then don't you wanna have an opportunity to enjoy life and have optionality and the freedoms that money, success and resources could potentially get you?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something Kathy Wood has talked about as well, you know, just about genomics and the advances that are happening right now in uh, some of the biotech uh, sector. And so it's definitely something that I'm interested in. Don't know that much about it. You know, my focus for the most part, because it's easier to research, is on, uh, you know, Crypto Web 3 and active investing. But uh, that's definitely something that interests me. And I think Balaji talks about that as well uh, in one of his interviews with... Either uh, Tim Ferriss or Ralph Paul, uh, where they, they, he talks about some of the restrictions that the CDC has on some of this innovation, and how some some of these innovations are happening now. It's just getting through the regulatory red tape to actually bring it to market, and so that's uh, that's something that I uh, definitely need to research a little more on.
1: A hundred percent, and bureaucracy is a big problem and challenge and everything from government to big corporations to and effectively decisions and moving forward and keeping pace with the changing dynamics in today's world. It's becoming harder and harder for many nations. And Balaji does a great job, like you said, and I said earlier in his book, the network state and other interviews His interview with both Raul and Tim Ferris are rather legendary. Uh, and there's a couple of really deep thought leaders that are certainly out there but we've already mentioned a couple of them don't want to overly bombard people but there's some you know really talented people out there so i look forward to following and to learning i consider myself more way more of an apprentice than any sort of master and i have a lot more to learn
0: well, that's a great mindset to have my friend so you've been able to pick the brains of some of the smartest entrepreneurs investors and business people around the world. Angela. what are some of the commonalities that you've noticed that help make them successful and then maintain that momentum?
1: I mean, I think it's some of the things that I probably have already mentioned. Uh, they, they don't necessarily think or fall in line like everyone else. Yes, they're often college educated, and yes, there's value in learning skill sets and the value that you get in the university, I would say arguably equally as important are getting away from your parents and developing more diversity with people around you that are outside of the community that you grew up in and the level of independence from the little things of making your bed to being responsible for your food to the professors not being as hands-on often with homework and such as whatever K through 12, it's up to you to take initiative for yourself. And this goes back to the bigger picture. So what does that equate to To me? Discipline. Motivation comes and goes. Uh, I work out six to seven days a week. Am I always motivated? Like yesterday it was torture for me. I had to do it. I had to put in the hour, but it was torture. I just didn't feel like doing it. So motivation is going to wane. What you need to have is discipline. That's not to say that every now and then you don't maybe cheat the rules a little bit. But for the most part, you got to be disciplined. The most successful people that I see, uh, they don't follow the traditional path. They think for themselves. And I keep on hitting that one hard. They think for themselves and they're disciplined. Start young. Be bold. Take risk. You practically have nothing to lose in your personal life, your career, and in starting a business. Now, yes, I'm simplifying it, of course it's harder than that, but you have to have a level of swag, yet also a level of humbleness and how do you mix and match that? How do you incorporate discipline? Uh, you gotta make sacrifices, you gotta get up early, you gotta grind it. And I see the young people now, especially young men, they, I don't know, they're, and I'm gonna sound like a, like a Mr. Tough old guy, but they're weak. They don't have the many of them, don't have the mental fortitude. You need to develop that. It's not ingrained. You work on that. You work on that. You have to be disciplined. You have to take certain risks. And these are gonna be very, very important things. And then you have to look a little to the future. Isn't the future some of the things we just spoke about? Longevity, biotech, uh, deep tech. The advancements of AI and robotics, which we didn't talk too much about. Obviously, Web3 and crypto. So yeah, like you want to be involved in a profession that is not going to put you in that position. You're probably not going to be wildly successful from a financial perspective. And that's fine. If that's what you want, that's more than fine. Uh, But if you want to escape what I call the matrix and you want to have optionality, you're going to have to create wealth likely multiple streams of income. And I mentioned the real estate example earlier on the warehouses and storage Mm -hmm. facilities, someone from a very humble background with effectively no college. Now, yes, you could say, well, to buy the first one, they must have built up the resources. Yeah, because that person worked since they were 18 to they were like 27 or 28 and they made sacrifices in where they lived in their car. They didn't go out to fancy clubs every night. And he built up a stash 30 years ago of like 100,000, which back then would probably feel like five or 700,000 now. And purchase his first one. You gotta make sacrifices. You have to be disciplined. You have to have an eye towards the future and what are trends that are gonna be out there. Like, I don't know, maybe commercial real estate in big cities of office space may not be the greatest idea in the world for obvious reasons. So you have to have some level of foresight into how things are going to look a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And that's wickedly hard. I get it. And it may be a little bit more luck than anything else. And then you have to apply principles, part of them that I described. Uh, and part of it is you know going... Just get your idea out there and then adapt it as you go along. Stop trying to be perfect because you're always going to fail if that's the case. And you're never going to reach that. Then you're going to be older and have not even tried. At least if you're younger and you tried and you failed, you could say, I put in the effort. I had the guts. I took the risk. I did this. It didn't work out. I adapted. I had to change course but I'm not someone who's always waiting for the conditions to be perfect. Good luck, because that's never going to happen.
0: Wow, Angelo, really powerful stuff, the discipline, the sacrifice. You know, there's there's a trader that I know and in the world of active investing and trading, you know, you get that allure of, oh, I'm a big-time trader, I drive a Lambo, you know, this is this is part of my life. <laughs> you know, one of the most successful and and probably wealthiest traders I know, Drives like a crap car. You know, he paid like five grand for it and it's done. And he's like, Yeah, I could totally buy that, uh, that Acura over there, but, uh, I'm still playing the game. I'm still doing this. So I don't want to do that now because that's going to set me back from my goals. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I hope the audience, uh, takes a lot away from, from what you just dropped, my man. That was great.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, you ask great questions. You bring out the best out of me, which is, pretty low on the benchmark of the great guests <laughs> that you've had but I'm but I'm glad to be able to share you know here's what I tell people that even pay me often tens of thousands of dollars a year to be a part of my family office association and some people say that I create a low benchmark in one year with me, whether you're one-on-ones, my digital interviews or my in-person events, you're probably going to walk away with one just one amazing connection or great idea that you should run with. And it's going to be worth way more than the money you paid me. I don't know when it's going to happen. And yes, you are going to have to run with it. It's not just going to fall directly into your lap. You got to go and get it. Then you got to execute. You have to do. You know, this goes into the bigger picture of, well, is what makes a leader. I would say it's someone who has a compelling vision of the future and is able to communicate, Communicate and inspire. So going back to what I said about younger folk, uh, those are things you could work on as well. Your ability to tell a story, to have a vision of the future and how to communicate written and verbal communication. And wouldn't you think that those things, the perception of those around you, of you, of your vision, of your ability to communicate and then to actually do it, or attempt to do it. That applies to your social life. That applies to engaging with your family, with loved ones, with new people, as well as business that kind of applies to everything. Yet funny how universities don't really do a great job and neither does our K through 12 in terms of teaching, whatever, those softer skills, emotional intelligence, and also important skills, like I said, creativity, vision, uh, discipline per se. And, uh, you know, everything that I just said, it's those appear to be things that were almost left on our own accord or our job as parents to our kids is certainly to instill a lot of that as well. And I, Mm -hmm. again, I went a little off on another tangent and got off course, but uh, I felt it was an important comment to make.
0: No, I think a lot of the most important things that we need to know in life are not taught in school. I mean, you think about taxes. They don't teach you how to do taxes (laughs) in school. Right? And so I think I think yeah, you're mm-hmm. uh, hitting the nail on the head right there. <laughs> it's,
1: I mean, I love what I do. It's very engaging. Oh yeah, I was talking about the one idea.
0: There's nothing wrong with that. You may
1: attend events and meet me or this or that and get relatively little value from it. I would say one that's mainly on you. But if you walk away with one over the course of 12 months, the idea is not going to be a five or $10,000 idea or a connection or relationship. It's probably going to be worth seven, eight, nine figures. But you're going to have to, along with me, some of that's on me, but you're going to have to identify that and move forward on it. So that's a little bit of my belief.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you think about all the successful entrepreneurs that you work with, it was one idea that they ran with. The guy with the storage units, you know, he, he just, yep. he, hey, I, I see an opportunity there. I'm going to capitalize on it. And now I've built up this, you know, potentially generational wealth. So how can people Uh, get more of what you're offering angelo uh how do they get involved with what you're doing and connect Uh, sure one thing
1: popped in my head before i answer that kind of giving back to the younger ones in terms of the advice men and women that i broadly gave earlier relative to discipline to sacrifices to taking at least calculated risk and to effectively share a vision and to communicate, uh, and I gave the idea with a basically you know, old fashioned business like storage and warehousing, but also about what the future could look like and where you likely wanna point your career in somewhat of that direction. Uh, there's something else that I've seen often. Uh, I mean, I know a high school kid who's earned six figures doing this, uh, and it's one of the things I spoke about in some of the college lectures that I give in business and entrepreneurship, there's also value in buying things that others don't see the value in owning outright, but have an interest in doing, AKA you buy and you rent in the winter in certain areas, whatever Vermont, Colorado, it may be skis. It may be uh, uh, something related to winter sports. So how could you engage yourself in that in other areas in voting? It may simply be, Uh, Kayaks and canoes that you rent out. So think of things that potentially, yes, you may need a little bit of capital, uh, but you could own and then you could strategically using social media and other platforms, which we didn't even get into, but you should all be more and more fluid in and learn how to leverage them to your advantage. So there's lots of opportunities. I've seen many investors buy homes and Airbnb them out. But I've also seen creative people do rents and leases in Airbnb or, uh, directly with whatever the landlord and then Airbnb that out there. So they're really using arbitrage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not even owning it. So, again, there's lots of ideas out there. Me and these entrepreneurs could share these ideas and if everyone did it, it would probably lose its arbitrage of advantage. The reality is less than 1% of the audience is even gonna act on it to explore it a little further. So really it's less about sharing the idea I wanna share and more so that the execution and discipline and dedication to it probably is more the hard part. Uh, so in terms of answering your question, uh, my podcast, which I'm gonna get back to being more active with, On traditional podcasting platforms, Apple and Spotify is The Angelo Robles, R-O-B-L-E-S Podcast. I also relabeled my YouTube platform, uh, that as well. Uh, And I'm effectively at Family Office on YouTube, where I probably at this moment am more active than traditional podcasting. You could find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Again, my name, Angelo Robles. I do have a personal and business Instagram. The business is Family Office Association. We're kind of rebranding it. I also got a LinkedIn, at Family Office Association, that's pretty built out. I do have a personal Instagram. It's a combination of sharing life advice, uh, health, wellness, and fitness, and a little bit of investing in family office, but it tends to skew, as you know, Scott, to be more personal. And yes, I push the boundaries of often sharing macro and economic thoughts with uh, whatever, like no shirt on exercising or <laughs> something like that. I Hey, in Instagram, you gotta do whatever you gotta do to get attention and we need to draw younger dynamic people into it. So mm-hmm. I'm Angelo Robles Meta, like Metaverse. Straight through, no uh, dashes or anything. Angelo okay. Robles Meta. So I am very active in social media. My core company is FamilyOfficeAssociation.com. You can find my email and connectivity through there. And really anyone. I'm even fine you know, to share my cell. Reach out anytime. I'm very good with text. Not always good with phone calls and voicemails. 203-570-2898. Again, you ask great questions. It's always an honor to be on your podcast. I love your audience and their investment acumen. Uh, their entrepreneurship, you got a young dynamic audience, and I look to learn from them as well. And I look forward to interacting in any way that they would like to.
0: Awesome. Angelo, another solid uh, podcast with you. Uh, If you haven't already, be sure to check out our first conversation. You can see the picture behind me. That one was solid tons of uh, Web3 and crypto stuff. This one was, I feel, a little deeper, but a nice uh, build onto uh, our our ongoing conversation. So thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And again, I got so much out of uh, your your, uh, insight and advice. So thank you, sir.
1: And uh, Scott, I'm also gonna share this to my audiences. Uh, So if you don't mind, for those that may be too lazy to look in the notes, if you could, I highly recommend subscribing to Scott's podcast as well and his YouTube, he does a great job. And if you could give your main handle, I think that would be great.
0: Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Trades, or you can check out Hot Wallet Pod. I also have a website, uh, www.hotwallet.ca. So thank you very much, man. I appreciate awesome. your time and I look forward to our next conversation. Always a
1: pleasure. Thanks so much. From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long beach and it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions.
0: Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exume the truth.
1: I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.